AJ Cannell here on the Coaches for Change podcast and just wanted to, before we get things underway on episode eight, just talk about some of our prior episodes and really some of our goals on this on this show overall in, in season one. Number one, we want to showcase real examples of change being made. And number two, also talk and have candid discussions, real talk. I mean, that's a phrase that's thrown out there often, but we've really tried to accomplish that either discussing things that are, are difficult subjects or something that you might not be accustomed to hearing people addressing in a public forum such as this. Some examples, IMG Academy's Alex Pop joined us and talked about the paradox of a white male trying to advance in an industry, but also trying not to perpetuate a system of white privilege. Kennesaw State head coach Amir Abdurrahim, his thoughts on why most people of color did not support Donald Trump but certain black celebrities, for instance, a guy like Lil Wayne, did. UCLA women's basketball associate head coach Shannon Perry LaBeouf on actually having the tough conversations about race in your daily lives. You can hear all that and much, much more if you check out our previous episodes. Without further ado, here we go. The Coaches for Change podcast, leading voices in the coaching world, discuss the change they're helping to create, drawing up a blueprint for social activism in the coaching community. I'm AJ Canal. This is episode eight of the C4C podcast. Visit us online at coachesforchange.org and at coachesforchange on Twitter and Instagram. Our guest on the program, Kelly Kamara, associate head coach at Vanderbilt Women's Basketball. Quickly on her background, standout playing career at Purdue and my neck of the woods, former assistant at UAlbany. I work as a broadcaster at Siena. She also had coaching stops at Valpo, Auburn, and Northwestern, and now the top assistant spot associate head coach at Vanderbilt. So, Kelly, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, to join us on the show. Tell me about, first of all, you know anything that I missed with yourself, your background, and why you decided to become involved with Coaches for Change. Yeah, first of all, thanks, AJ, for having me. This is great. Um, I think this is really important to get everybody's stories out there and talk about, you know, different parts of the country, what we're doing as opposed to maybe what the Northeast is doing to what they're doing out in UCLA. So I think it's an important um, conversation to have. Uh, Coaches for Change came about this summer and it was something that honestly, deep down, I knew I wanted to be a part of something that would help change. I, I knew in, in looking at the things that were going on in this country that I wanted to be a part of something special. And there were a number of groups that were starting to pop up all across the country. And when CARM um, reached out and said, hey, do you wanna be part of this group? Here's what we stand for. I really loved the four E's that Coaches for Change stand for. And the one E that really stood out to me was to educate and empower. And that's what we try and do here as coaches. We want to educate, we want to empower. And those two things really stood out to me, something I wanted to be a part of. And, and I saw the other coaches that were involved with it. And I said, this is a top-notch group. I want to join them. And I want to, I want to start some change here in the Nashville community, and especially here at Vanderbilt. Yeah, that's a good place to dive in. Do you feel like, Coach Kamara, that there's a different added aspect that plays into those ease? of your job description now, as opposed to where a coach's 
job description, what it might be 10, 20 years ago, even more recently than that, where before it might have been win games and graduate student athletes. But is there that third element now that plays into trying to grapple with those student athletes role in the community at large and helping educate them in a, in a different way? Without a doubt, I think even as a player, and I won't I won't date myself, but uh, 20 plus years ago as a player, there wasn't a whole lot of talk of um, using your voice, using your platform. I mean, there wasn't social media, there wasn't all these outside factors to where you could use your influence to speak your mind. And now this day and age, and one of the ease of, of Coaches for Change is evolve, and we are evolving as coaches. We've got to take on and embrace social media. I mean, it's a part of our life. It's a part of our players' lives. It's a part of the world. And if we can help our players understand, okay, hey, you have power. You do. You have power. And if you feel some kind of way about something, we give you that okay to voice your opinion. Tell me about working at Vanderbilt like you do. And it seems like that's an institution that's emerged, you know, in the in recent months over the past calendar years is, is really a forerunner as far as uh, some of the expansions that are going on the expanded role of the athlete or the coach in the community at large and how it supported do you feel like you are at a place like Vanderbilt right now I know it's easy to, to sort of throw that out there and say you know our school has our back and they support what we're doing but it feels like Vanderbilt has gone truly the extra mile that is 100% right, AJ. And our head coach, Stephanie White, has been very vocal about how supported she feels um, in speaking her mind and allowing our players to speak their mind because of the support that we feel, not just from the athletic department, but from the university as a whole. And there have been a number of emails come out um, over the course of the last eight months where they have brought on guest speakers and and debates and things that are happening on this campus to really make us kind of in the forefront of change. And it's been really encouraging to our players to see that, you know what, it's not just your coaches that supports you. It's not just your athletic department. It is your entire university that supports your voice. What about the role that uh, someone like Candace Story Lee plays into that? The first black female athletic director in SEC history um, I mean, that's a big deal, especially in a conference like the SEC. You talked about different geographic regions of the country, the significance in that sense. But just tell me about the support you've gotten from her, what her leadership style has been like, and just sort of the significance of that um, storyline within your conference. Yeah, that's huge. It's a huge thing for Black women. I mean, representation is so important right now. And so when our players see somebody like Candace, who, if everybody doesn't know, Candace was a basketball player here at Vanderbilt. She got three degrees from Vanderbilt before her time was over, okay? And then she came to Vanderbilt after she graduated, um, got into the administration part of it, worked her way up, was the right-hand man to the athletic directors for the, the, the last couple of years. And then it was her time and she slid into that role perfectly. And the one thing about Candace and what she really, really prides herself on is being transparent. Like if you're not doing your job, Candace is going to tell you. If you're doing your job, Candace is going to tell you. So uh, on both sides of it, she is very transparent and you and humbling. Like Candace is very humble. Like you'll walk into um, you know, the administrative offices and she'd be like, Hey, Kelly, what's up? You know, and it's just, it gives that sort of family feel to it. And now Candace was our SWA, our senior women's administrator 
before she took on the role of athletic director. So she's very near and dear to our program, supports us, supports our athletes, and it is a wonderful representation of what our players can aspire to be. On top of all that, I mean, again, it just feels like Vanderbilt has been front and center in a lot of this talk um, when it comes to so just so many different efforts to promote social justice and also in terms of gender equality with Sarah Fuller. That's thinking back a ways at this point, you know, compared just thinking about it really wasn't that long ago, but just with right. the news cycle. And it feels like it could have been certainly in the age of COVID and the election, everything that's gone on. It could have been three years ago. It could have been yesterday. It's hard to who knows at this point, right. but obviously last football season, that story, you know, comes about. And, you know, I think that there were a couple of camps there. It's like, on the one hand, I think most reasonable people looked at it as an inspirational thing. There was a select vocal minority that was like, well, this is kind of a meaningless symbolic gesture, um, sure. which is unfortunate, but how would you sort of respond to that? And what would, what sort of significance would you say her, appearance in you know in the game making the extra point yeah had. yeah I think you know first of all what a great storyline uh, a great storyline for um, our players to see for my daughter to watch and see it just it really shows you that if you do things the right way you work hard people are going to notice and the best part of that whole story is just that Derek Mason our former head football coach gave her a chance I mean, in life, all you can ask for is a chance, right? And he gave her a chance. And she didn't know at that time that her whole world would be turned upside down and, and everything that would follow along with this. But it really just showed that Vanderbilt isn't afraid to think outside the box. And I think that's what we're most proud of is that we can take chances. We can do things that haven't been done before and take risks. And Derek Mason took a chance on Sarah Fuller and, and the rest is history. What an amazing story. What a, an incredible human rights story for all the young girls coming up in the athletic world. You know, when you think about um, being a role model to young women, young girls in the athletic world, where does your role come in in that? Uh, we've talked about, we've had different guests from various backgrounds on the program and now you're talking about your background. You're obviously, you're Caucasian, you're white. How would you say you relate to women of color who you have coached? Because I've talked to a few different white coaches mm -hmm. on our podcast so far, and they've all had you know some different, some interesting answers on that. So give me your perspective on that. That's a great question, AJ. I mean, I, I think that's one that internally, as a, as a white coach that you've thought about throughout your coaching career is how do I relate um, to my black student athletes? And it's, it's not funny, haha funny, but it's kind of ironic funny that um, I've had this conversation with other coaches on the road or, or you know, other educators in, in, you know, in schools and things that have to um, surround themselves with people of, of different races and people with different backgrounds. And it all comes back to this. A human being is a human being, right? And at the end of the day, what you're feeling is pretty much probably what I'm feeling. And the way that you connect with somebody, whether they're white, black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever it is, is the same way you would connect with any other human being. And for me, if I'm genuine and if I'm myself, I feel like I can connect with anybody and I can inspire, empower and educate and evolve with any player I have because I'm just being me. And I think when you try to do 
something outside of who you are, that's when that disconnect comes with anybody from any race, any creed, any color. That's when that disconnect comes. If you're a genuine human being and you, you coach from your heart and you coach from um, a spot down in your soul that is genuine, I think you can connect and empower anybody that you coach. Coach Kamara, I mean, you're a member of the LGBTQ community. Tell me about where we are. I'm going to leave a general on purpose here. Where are we at right now in sports, you know, yeah. on, on that topic? Because it's not one that I don't know that as many people are comfortable always discussing. Um, sure. It's not necessarily been at the forefront in the same way that other social justice issues have. I think it certainly needs to be. But tell me about your thoughts on where we are right now on that issue. Sure. Yeah, I think um, and it'll go back to Vanderbilt just kind of being ahead of the curve. We did a pride night uh, two years ago here at Vanderbilt is something that had evolved in, in the beginning when we took over here at Vanderbilt. It was an equality night. Um, people were still kind of hung up on that gay pride, gay LGBTQ sort of label. Um, you know, and Nashville's a, a somewhat conservative area. It's not like we're on any coast or, or have a, a lot of um, loud things going on in, in Nashville. So it was kind of a shock to, to people that that's what we wanted to do. And, um, and so we had a pride night. And I'm going to tell you something. There were more young people that reached out to us and said, thank you. Thank you for bringing the attention to the Vanderbilt campus, the, the Nashville community. Um, thank you for being proud of who you are and, and sharing your family and your children with us. And it just became one of those, um, it just kind of played out in a way that we never expected. It was, it was wonderful for our players to see, wonderful for this university and wonderful, wonderful for the community. And I think it had an effect on the rest of the collegiate um, schools in the country. I mean, there have been more and more I've seen over the course of the last two years of Pride Night um, type of events at games than I ever saw prior to us doing it. Now, I'm not going to say we're the first ones. I mean, they've been doing it in, in the pros for years, but um, for a college team to take a chance on having that as, as a night um, for fans to celebrate, I think was a really huge moment for us. How do you think, I mean, you're involved in the women's side. How do you think we pull men's sports to a more even level with where women's sports is at on this issue, because it's just frankly, yeah. people who are who are open members of the gay community, LGBTQ community, way more prevalent on the women's side. It's not even close compared sure. to the the men's side. And I, I've been in men's locker rooms. Very, I'm not going to call any one specific team out, but like that's a thing. Like you talk about sort of the quote unquote locker room talk, right? Still a thing, um, specifically with that with with that topic. Um, there are very few things that you can get away with with saying these days, thank goodness, of right. the that are offensive in nature, that are singling out, you know, a group of people in that way. But you know what? That's sort of one of those unfortunate relics of the past that really still exists, um, specifically in men's locker rooms. I, I would a hundred percent submit that. Anybody can feel free to argue with me yeah. on that, but I think they're wrong. So how do all that being said? How do we start to bring men's sports to the point where I think women's sports are in terms of um, being accepting of people of different backgrounds in that way? Yeah, that's that's an interesting um, kind of look at it. You know, I think anything that is um, 
kind of a buzz topic or something that that could be controversial, I think it doesn't affect you until it affects you, right? So like, for instance, COVID, like everybody's like, oh, COVID, I wash my hands, I wear a mask. It doesn't really affect you until your wife gets it, your husband gets it, you get it, right? And then it really, it's like, oh, you know, and now you sort of look at it in a different way. I think as the years evolve and as the world evolves and, you know, the star basketball player at Ole Miss's sister is gay, he becomes more accepting of it, more of an ally, and then his friends become an ally. So I think, first of all, accepting it, right? I mean, that's the first, the first part of anything is just accepting it. Um, and then trying to get allies that support you. And when it starts to become part of your circle, then it starts to spread as far as acceptance, love, and then really just, it's not, it's a non-topic. It's just, that's my sister or that's my teammate sister. Like it's not, it's not even a, a topic that you have to talk about. It's just um, a respect, a mutual respect from one person to another. That last point is super interesting because I always go back and forth in that. I think there are certain perversions a little bit of wanting to make um, sexuality or race a non-topic because it's like, oh, hey, why do you bring race into everything or whatever? Right. Um, when sometimes, clearly, it is necessary to have in mind ways that people of different backgrounds might be treated differently. But as you said, the long-term goal would be we're all just equal. We're all just human beings that all see each other as the same, but we're not there now. So how do you maybe square those two things where sometimes we do have to have these things in mind. We have to see color sometimes in a way we have to see different backgrounds of other sorts, religion, sexuality, whatever, in order to have a more just society. But our long-term goal is again, to get to a point where we're not having to think about that. That's, that's a great point too. And, and I can say this, Carm sent out a, um, Carm Massarello, the head coach at Siena, sent out a link to um, a YouTube video of a woman talking about Black History Month, right? And, and why white people are like, well, we should have a white history month and, and why, that is, um, why that is so controversial. And she said, you know what? And this made so much sense. She said, you know what? We do need a white history month because we need to be educated on why we need a Black History Month and, and what really shook down and what really happened. And the history that we all were taught in our history books growing up is not quite the history that really happened. And I really feel like when people say, oh, I don't see color, you know, I don't judge. It's okay that you see color. We are different. And that's the beauty about this world. It's a beauty about sports. It's a beauty about college is that people are different. And, and so when like, you know, family members or something's like, well, I don't, you know, I don't see if that person's black or white. Well, of course you do. And that's fine. Like they're beautiful for who they are and, and, and they're wonderful for, for the fact that they look different. Um, so you're right. We're not there yet. And, and I don't know when and if we will ever be there, but I do think that we can love each other for who we are. And the best way to do that is by every single day, you do your part, right? And as a mom, I do my part to educate my two children on Black History Month and important Black people in history and read books. Um, we just bought the other day LeBron James's kid book and, and we're reading it at night. And, you know, there are ways that you can do it. And I think if it starts with us and it starts with our generation, then it's only going to be improved. And we've got to take baby steps. And every day it starts with you.
Yeah, it's definitely those incremental steps that are most uh, attainable. Let's wrap it up this way. So we have a story that when your team was still, well, actually, no, I'm going to, I'm going to change what's I'm thinking about it. And I was going to say when your team was still playing games, let's actually touch on that for a second before I go to the wrap it up point, which is that, you know, the Vanderbilt women's basketball team, you had your season canceled due to COVID and that's certainly a unique story within, well, unique and not so unique within this current environment. You know, there are a bunch of teams that have had to deal with that. Some Ivy league teams and schools like that, that just never even got underway. How challenging has, has that been, Coach, just for your group to know that at this point, you know, your season gets shut down. You're not going to have a chance to go into the postseason this year, and then you got to wait until November or whatever to start next season. That's a long time before you get to play yeah. another game. Yeah, I mean, as a coach, you're a coach because you want to coach basketball and you're a competitor and you want to scout and scheme and, and, and do the best you can to put your players in positions to win. And then all of a sudden, you know, that that stops and it's hard. It's hard because the whole rhythm and flow to your year gets completely destroyed because now we're basically postseason slash preseason and it's the middle of February. Right. And you turn on the SEC network or you turn on ESPN and you see people playing games and it just eats at you because it's the really hard thing to all of a sudden stop what you love doing. Um, but I'll tell you this. We didn't have enough to play. It wasn't fair to the ones that were healthy and able to play. And we told our players at the beginning of the year, look, if you don't feel comfortable, we have your back. Our administration has your back. If you want to at any point in time say enough is enough, we've got you. And they did. And we supported them and we continue to work out with them now. We've got one-on-one -on -one workouts going on, um, you know, and, and really trying to train them um, from a foundation standpoint to be ready for next season. So now, as I was going to go into to wrap things up, back when you were in the midst of the season, your team made the decision to skip the anthem, which was a little bit different. We've seen some people stand, some people follow the example of others and kneel for the anthem. Right. Your team decided to skip out on it entirely. Really relevant right now with the Mavericks. And they've been. this has been going on for some time with them. The story just kind of came out, though with Mark Cuban making the decision to not play the anthem before the Dallas Mavericks game. Then the follow-up to that, for whatever reason, the NBA says, no, our policy is that the anthem has to be played. So now they're going to start playing it. But just you're seeing all this happen, kind of shades of the decision that your team made, which was to skip the anthem entirely on a, on a larger level. Mark Cuban kind of made that decision for his franchise What's your reaction to the way that this story is played out considering, you know, what your group chose to do? Right. So uh, here's the thing that I can tell you about the, the national anthem and any decision that a team or an organization or an owner makes, you're not going to please everybody, right? No decision you make is going to please everybody. So what you have to do is protect and honor the players that you have and what they want to do. And we said prior to long before the season started, Hey, you need to have a conversation within the team. Talk about what you want to do. Bring it to us, but we need to know why. You can't just say we want to do X, Y, and Z, but why do you want to do X, Y, and Z? And then what are you going to do about it, right? So it's not just an action. There has to be a plan after the action. Okay, so we told them that, and they came to us and said, um, we talked about it as a team, we voted on it, and we would like to remain in the locker room. And we said, okay, um, what are you going to do in the locker room while the national anthem is being played? And they said, we are going to pray. We are going to pray for our country. We are going to pray for those that have been wronged. We're going to pray for those that have wronged them. 
and their families because everybody gets touched by things that, that happen. Um, and we felt like that was so great. I mean, the, they came up with that. This was their idea and what was in their heart. And so we did not go out for the national anthem. We didn't go out at home. We didn't go out on the road. We stayed in the locker room. We held hands. We had a moment of silence and we prayed. And that's what they wanted to do. And I'll tell you, we had an outreach, probably 50-50 of people that were ticked off and people that were 100% supportive. And like I said in the beginning, you're never going to get everybody happy. Nobody's ever going to just do something that's going to make the world happy. But we did something that made our players feel proud of themselves and feel proud of their voice. Really good way to end things. Kelly Kamara, we wanted to have you on earlier. We had some technical issues on an earlier attempt. So glad to have put this one in the books. Great conversation. Thank you so much. Awesome. AJ, I appreciate it. All right. So once again, a reminder, you can visit us online at coachesforchange.org. That's the number four at coaches for change on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the feed. The upcoming weeks, we got the final couple of episodes in season one of this podcast. Plenty of uh, great wisdom shared by past guests as well as we talked about. Go check out our library of previous episodes. But I'm AJ Cannell. This has been episode eight of the Coaches for Change podcast. <laughs>